Hey everybody, this is Raymundo Gonzalez. And this is Giovanni Rosario. Welcome to the Latinx Guard Podcast. We hope you enjoy the show. Remember, everything we say is just for fun. Nothing's meant to be taken too seriously. If you are going to be a hater, stay a hater. But either way, support. Welcome everybody, this is episode 2 of the Latinx Guard Podcast. Once again, I am your host, Raymundo Gonzalez. And this is Giovanni Rosario. Today we're going to be talking about a few topics. We're going to start talking about something lighthearted, something uh, we both have experience with being and experiencing mad enforcers. We have a very special episode today because we're going to be talking about a hot topic in the jiu-jitsu community. We're going to be talking about the $46 million lawsuit. You heard that right, 46 M's. Chingao, bro. Diablo. Diablo. <laughs> this is a huge chunk of change. We'll go into more detail about the actual specifics of the case later. And then we're going to talk about, Giovanni, what were the um, competitions? Um, So uh, first, we're going to start off with... Uh, or. Later on, we're going to get into grappling industries, which I competed in, as well as a couple of other people. And then we also had the Midwest finishers, as well as uh, Rise Invitational this past weekend. Great. So look forward to those topics and let's go. So Matt Enforcers, right? <clears throat> Something that's common in almost every single gym. Every, I've, yeah. I think you and I have not only had the experience of being hammered by these mat enforcers pause <laughs> but also like being mat enforcers right absolutely um if, for those of you who don't know and uh maybe a newer to jiu-jitsu listen to the podcast jomani how would you describe or define a mat enforcer um a mat enforcer is like a guard dog it's um the person <laughs> who when you go into a gym and you are let's say you are somebody who's experienced and or maybe an upper belt and you're really just ragdolling everybody then you usually send out your mad enforcer to uh give the person the work um and that's how i would describe it now that we're on it actually a funny story um and this i qualify this as a mat enforcer so ray and i were out training in california getting ready for worlds and um Ray went in for a no-arm triangle on someone. Oh, I know this story. <laughs> yeah, keep going. And then this individual, I had the pleasure of rolling with them next, and they were mad. They were mad that Ray tried an ar no-arm triangle, and it was petty, but this Matt Enforcer um, released all his anger that he had <laughs> on of Ray towards me, which, which was fun, which, again, to, to your point, we've both been on the receiving end as well of a of being a mat enforcer yeah i think uh you gave a pretty good definition of what a mat enforcer is if i can add anything it's just the uh, it's not only the people who are like like uh just smashing everybody into the ground right you need somebody to check them but also like um it's it's like a weird um maybe not hypocrisy but like um like contradiction in the jiu-jitsu world because like a, a lot of schools are like no ego no ego no ego right but then the whole idea of the mad enforcer is to like check someone's ego or be yeah. that person that can check someone's ego. Like if you have like a high school wrestler or if you have like a big power lifter guy and then like every, like all the other white belts, like just can't put him in the mount and hold him down. Right. And this guy thinks he's like, yo, jiu-jitsu doesn't work. Like, see, I told you guys. And then like you get like the mad enforcer. Yeah. Like who's been doing jiu-jitsu a couple of years, knows how to like, knows the tricks to keep somebody down. Right. And all of a sudden like that guy's ego is like flattened. You're yeah. Like, oh, no, wait, this was true. Yeah. Um, there are some people that when they come in at white belts, you know, they can't be controlled that easily. You Absolutely. Know? They're pretty athletic. They're pretty strong. You know, so you just send like a purple belt or something to just, just check them. Right. And and like to be fair, um, that isn't a skill that a lot of people learn right away or pick up. So sometimes like the mat enforcer gets this uh, negative image of, of like 
like you said, kind of, you know, hypocrisy or whatever. Um, but I think there is an important role in having a mat enforcer because sometimes you do need that individual that can pace themselves or just knows how to, I don't want to say control, but can see when somebody's ego is getting in the way and just kind of, you know, take them from where they're, maybe they're at a 10 and they can take them down to a seven or six, you know? Yo, you brought up a very important point. Maybe you didn't mean to, or maybe you did. Maybe just like high IQ and I don't, I didn't get it. But anyway, so the there's a good way and there's a proper way to be a mat enforcer. Right. I think if you're just like see a white belt and you're like, ooh, I have to stomp that guy out. Like, I think you're letting your own ego get in the way. Right. right. And you're sort of missing the point because I've been a mat enforcer sometimes where um, there's a new student and he's beating everybody up. And then my instructor is like, yo, you need to go check this guy. Show him what's up. Show him that jiu-jitsu works. Right. right? My instructor likes to say, like, you got to make him touch the art. Right. Y- yeah. You got to, like, let him know that it's a specific way of doing stuff. Um, but I, at least I don't remember, like, um, maybe it's because I was a smaller guy, so that's just the way I train with everybody, but I knew that there was a specific way to do that, right? I knew that, like, I couldn't just flying triangle him, he wouldn't get it. He would think it's like a magic trick, and like, oh, that only works because he was able to pull out his magic wand and hit me with a a Avada Kedavra, you know? Right. Um, and to your point, I have a, I guess that brought up a good question, is like, what do you think are some of the qualities that is required to be considered a mat enforcer because i also feel like some people kind of take on this title and they're not best suited for this role so one thing and this that's a very good question giovanni one thing that i think is um or should be associated with a mat enforcer oddly enough but has nothing to do with their jujitsu skills is their um personality Right. Right. Like if you're going to be a mat enforcer, you should be pretty friendly or at least personable. Right. Right. If you go up and act like a big, scary thug and you're like, yo, I'm going to I'm gonna kick your ass. Like, yeah. Like, yo, you've been training the wrong way. Like, no, like people should know that they're doing this just because they want to show you the right way to practice the art. Right. You know, it's like, oh, this guy didn't mean to hurt me. This guy just wanted to show me how jujitsu is actually practiced safely, respectfully, and just show me that there's more to learn. Right. I think yeah. also, it's like it's like being a parent. Right. I mean, I'm not saying parenting and this is the same, but it's, it's similar. Right. Right. If you go up to a kid and you just lash out on them and you're like, you shouldn't get on the table. Ah, right. But, but if you tell them like, hey, when you get on the table, this can happen. Or like, hey, like I said, you're having fun, but this is not how we have fun. Right. You know? I think it's very similar. Yeah. I mean, you're, to your point, like it, the where the similarities, I think, come in is that you're in positions to show discipline mm-hmm. right um, or to teach discipline and, yeah, sure. and you know it's it's never easy but yeah I, I agree with that for sure like you you have to be personable um you can't you have to know how to train with different body types as well yeah right like I, because sometimes when you are the mat enforcer the person you have to enforce might be bigger smaller maybe about the same size and as we know um like anything depending on the training partner we have to adapt to that for sure yeah and this is like going back into like our previous episode right um we were talking about like toxic gym cultures and stuff like if you're a mat enforcer if your instructor tells you like hey hey go roll with this guy and you think he's sending you over to be a mat enforcer yeah he's not telling you go beat up this guy i mean if he is then your instructor is at fault here (laughs) yeah right but what you should do is like, you should go up to them and be like, hey, man, what's your name? Oh, yeah, yeah. Just be a regular human being. Like, God forbid you be a regular human being. Just a gym, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, how, how many regular human beings are you finding in jiu-jitsu? Let's, oh, yeah. Let's, that's, let's be true. real. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, just uh, when I look for, like, a good man enforcer now, because I guess I'm in a higher position of authority in my school. Right. You know, I'm one of, like, the head instructors. 
you know, I, I typically choose somebody that I know is going to be personable and friendly and then talk to that guy, like ask him where he's from, you know, just very simple questions. But now I want to talk about like the actual like process of being the man enforcer, like, right? Like, how should that role look like? Right. Um, I'll let you chime in. But when I was the man enforcer, one thing that I always wanted to do was try to show how little effort I was actually using. Right. Right. Because it doesn't matter if like I can like um pin a guy to the mat and then submit him five times, but then I'm huffing and puffing. He's going to rationalize that in the head. It's like, oh, this guy's sprinting. Like, of course, he's going to outpace me. Yeah. Right. Like, what do you think? Um, I, I agree. I think it's a role by role per basis. So depending on who you train with. But I definitely feel like if you are matching their intensity, then they might get the wrong idea of what they're supposed to do. So I think that you have to be able to dominate i don't want to say dominate but you should be able to roll with them in a way that shows them that no matter what they do you're still in control right. and like i i like what you said in that jiu-jitsu works and touching mm -hmm. the art right like you have to show them that in this room uh, although this is a very physical and you know contact heavy sport there is there are rules that we should abide by like just For because sure. just because i can swing my legs crazy doesn't mean that that's the right thing to do you might kick somebody in the head so mm -hmm. like they might be able to get, do those things when they roll with me but the takeaway should be why they shouldn't do that, right? Mm -hmm. So part of the responsibility, I think, falls on me to not only show them that it works, but also give them a clear explanation afterwards because yeah. sometimes you show somebody something or they're just like, oh, that's cool, and then they do the same thing, yeah. and you see them do it over and over. That That's bad because you put other members at risk, but you also um, create bad habits. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think when somebody's trying to be a mat enforcer, weirdly enough, and this is uh, another transition, I think there are certain techniques that you should never do on, like, a day one person. Absolutely. I think, of course, like, all of the ones that are already pretty, um, that you should be pretty cautious about. Yeah. Like, any, like, flying submissions, um, any footlocks. Not for any other like, reason. Like, I don't mean to stigmatize footlocks enough that we've already sure. done in the jiu-jitsu community. But I just think um, if you choke somebody with a rear naked choke, or if you get somebody in an arm bar, like that's a pain that people readily can recognize as like bad i should tap if you're yeah. putting it in the context of someone who's never done jiu-jitsu before they can right. be like oh god like something bad's gonna happen let me tap but if you put somebody in a footlock and they've never done brazilian jiu-jitsu before they don't know what's happening yeah like they just don't register that pain the same way they do like elbow shoulder or neck pain absolutely you know? so they, they they will let their knee explode yeah and I, and like you said because they don't recognize it and i think a lot of the injuries that come with leg locks are just more severe or more often more severe than something like a choke or mm. even an arm bar, right? Um, so they're definitely, um, that that matters a lot. Yeah, and I'm not saying you can never full out a white belt, you know? Right. I mean, like, but they're going to have to learn a certain time. Right, there, there needs to be, like, a process to it. Like, if their skill level, if they can't even mm -hmm. pass guard, yeah, then yeah. it may, just makes no sense. And yeah. there's no, nobody benefits from no, that, really. definitely. It's like, uh, if, if Jiu-Jitsu is learning a language, you're using words that are way too big for them at that moment. Yeah. Um, so aside from footlocks, I think like, um, so there are certain techniques that you should use and should try to stay closer to, I think like, um, such as th the king of all submissions. I think that every single white belt and every single lay person by that, I mean, people who have never done visual music before, um, is a rear naked choke. Yeah. Right. If you catch like a day one off the street person in a rear naked choke, 
they're going to know like, oh, I am being choked. Oh, he got me. Right. There's yeah. never been like um, a person that I've gotten in a rear naked choke and not understood what was happening. Right. There's just so many factors to it. Like I am behind you. Right. Like you cannot touch me. Yeah. Like my arms are wrapped around your neck and you cannot peel my hands off of you. Yeah. Like there is it's just such an, an easy technique to understand in terms of like um, body awareness. Yeah, um, I like I like that body awareness, and I think it also starts to register the idea of how to how to apply a submission, right? Like you don't have to go super aggressively. Oh I think yeah, for the sure. choke is uh, the rear naked choke is a pretty safe way to be like, okay, start slow. I, I, when I whenever I teach classes and we do our open rounds, I always say if you catch a submission, go slow enough where you give your partner enough time to tap. Mm -hmm. And I think that's uh, the rear naked choke is very good to especially learn that skill. Yeah, and I think it also like um. It sort of is a natural defense to some of the excuses that a normal person or like a lay person might make. Like, because right. sometimes you'll catch like a, an arm bar or a triangle on like a day one person or someone who needs to be checked, right? If you're the mat enforcer, if we're staying in this angle. Yeah. And they'd be like, oh, you only caught me because you're like, you know, this move, you got lucky. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, like maybe I did get lucky. Maybe you just like a lot of wrestlers, they'll like poke their heads into triangles. Yeah. And like, yeah, I kind of only got lucky that you didn't know that was a bad thing to do. Yeah. But like, if you catch somebody in a rear naked choke from their back, it's like, oh yeah, when did I get lucky? I got lucky when I put you on the floor. I got lucky when I got past your legs. I got lucky when I got behind you. Like what? That must, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of luck. I had a, a, a friend of ours. Um, we call, we'll call him El Pulpo. <laughs> he wants to, because I mean, and this is more of a personal thing. I would always say that I got lucky. It's, you know, insecurities and shit. Yeah. But he always would say to me, like, luck is a skill. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> now, I don't know if that's true. But, like, sure, some, like you said, sometimes you do get lucky. But sometimes I'm just better than you and that's yeah. it. Like, yeah. Um, so going back to, like, submissions or techniques that you do and don't do as a mat enforcer, um, I think, like, techniques that you try to stay away from are techniques that your opponent or rather, like, the lay person that you're trying to enforce jiu-jitsu upon like techniques that they can't readily understand right so if you hit like don't put somebody in worm guard or like a very highly specific jiu-jitsu position yeah because your job isn't <coughs> to beat them into the ground your job is to educate them on the way jiu-jitsu should be done right and you're just using way too advanced mechanics at that point like they're not gonna get the lesson right um i think that guards that you should stay stick to are like the very simple ones that we all start out with like close guard Half guard. Um, if you if they need to go to the more open guard position, Della Hiva, right? Yeah. Um, if you want to like wow them a little bit, like maybe like the most advanced thing you do is spider guard. Right. Um, I think that the techniques that we we're talking about guards you should use, guards you shouldn't use. Um, oh, and if you want to use like sweeping techniques, like try to use ones that like are very like overt. Like, the, you you know what's happening now, like, the subtle sweeping techniques or, like, the stuff from, like, single leg X or, like... Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Butterfly guard. Maybe butterfly guard will work because that's pretty simple mechanics. Like, your hips are getting thrown up in the air and turned yeah. over. Um, but I think it's all about letting the other person experience jiu-jitsu and, like, what it actually is, which is just control, For right, sure. at every single point. Control over them and control over yourself, most importantly. Yeah, I mean, I agree with all of that for sure. And, like... Um, I was actually having a conversation with my boy and, and I was telling him the, 
you're almost teaching somebody how to move at first. Oh, yeah. Right? Because you see a lot of people that come in, if they don't have a, a wrestling background or just an athletic background, they don't even know how to, like, walk in a straight line. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that might be a, a bit of an exaggeration. But as speaking, speaking as someone who's not, who was never, like, athletic growing up, like, just being able to walk around somebody's guard, it, you, it sounds simple, and in theory it is, but, like, most people trip over their feet. They cross their ankles, right? Like, there's just a lot of simple things and you see a lot in in some training rooms right like people are so eager to like advance at such a rapid rate or instructors you know they want to teach all these advanced movements and it's like your student doesn't even know how to move on their feet so how are they gonna why are they learning heel hooks or why are they learning these ankle locks um and i think kind of to still to stay on the mat enforcer sometimes the mat enforcer is also probably the head person of this gym or one of the head figures and i think that when you have those two roles they can get mixed and although they can seem similar they're they're a little different right as a mad enforcer you get to, i think you get to apply a little bit more force during your roles um and usually a mad enforcer is some sort of competitor so like you're there's a bit of a difference for sure um but it's tricky role for sure Okay, so I want to switch the conversation to our second point, uh, our second topic for today. <laughs> We're about to have a lot of fun, everybody listening out there. So for those of you who don't know, um, I'll fill you in, and if Giovanni, you... Um, I, I, I mean, I'm probably just going to throw a joke here and there. Okay, so in the recent past couple of days, there has been a huge upset in the jiu-jitsu community over this lawsuit that happened within our community. Um it was uh, decided in favor of the plaintiff who was awarded $46 million over the defendant who was a jiu-jitsu instructor. And the lawsuit was over uh, negligence in practice, rather. So so the plaintiff sued the defendant, the jiu-jitsu instructor, because during an open mat at the school in, I believe, San Diego, we'll try to, like— keep as many names out of our mouths as possible right um so we're not going to name the school we're not going to name the person but um the students sued the instructor because during an open mat the instructor went for a technique called a rolling back take mm -hmm. and during this technique uh we'll talk about more about the specifics of the case um the student's neck was very badly injured yes causing a spinal injury and this caused the student debilitating injuries. I think temporary paralysis being one of them. I believe so. And then um, once the student had made a full or during their way to a full recovery, the student sued the instructor in the school. And there was a lot of things that happened to this case. An expert witness was brought into it. So and, <laughs> <laughs> and then the student was eventually awarded $46 million. Um, so before we, we get to the jokes, um, yeah, based off of what I saw, um, I, I don't know any specifics. So if you want more information, I'm, you just go on Instagram, go on Google, do your own research. But um, I believe this incident took place in 2018. Um, and yeah, like Ray said, it happened off of... Uh, a role and you can see in the video that there was a um it, it doesn't look very pretty that said there's a lot of factors um that go into this 
video. So when I first saw it, I, all I saw was this big headline. Man was paralyzed. He wins $46 million. Um, and just off of the headline, like media, like media usually does, it was, it just said one side of the story. Yeah, dude. When, when I saw the video and obviously you, if you have grappling experience and you saw what happened, you, you instantly, you're like, this does not match the headline I saw. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to quickly go over what I saw in the video. And <clears throat> from what I read, um, First of all, they, they obviously this person was a, a white belt, which is a white belt for those of you that don't know. It's your first belt in jiu-jitsu. That doesn't mean that you don't have any experience at all. Mm -hmm. Based, again, this is just hypotheticals. This is just off of what I read. Um, the individual has had grappling experience. Mm -hmm. um, and in the video, I'm not, I don't, I can't speak for the incident itself, but it looked like the person on bottom, which was the white belt, had initiated it, what we call a Granby roll or forward roll. And in the roll, the instructor who was being sued just followed that with a rolling back take of his own. And somewhere in that scramble, there was an incident. Now, there's, if you want to get specific, there's blame to go on both sides. Uh, we're not going to do that because we're t we joke too much for that shit. I'm going to do that. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I think that, you know, ultimately it sucks because both people here suffered, right? Mm -hmm. This person suffered an injury. Obviously, this uh, the instructor's reputation um, suffered and as well as the jiu-jitsu community because now as an instructor with all of this coming to light and especially, which Ray will get into more details because he has more information on, on the... <laughs> on the witness that was being called um like as as an instructor and even just as a business owner that does now you have to be mindful extra mindful of that stuff obviously this is a contact sport and you can't uh save or you can't like prevent every injury but it does like now put that over your head now you have people coming in here and be like oh, i heard about this 46 million dollar lawsuit am yeah. i gonna break my neck or sure. you know stuff like that so we're not gonna talk anymore about this specifics of this case if you want more information like Giovanni said i'd highly uh recommend that you look into yourself just right. because i i think that the experience like Giovanni had when he first looked at the uh, articles that were being released are very misleading right and i think that going into it you should know that but also um have that experience of like reading the headline being Absolutely. shocked but then also like having that safety of like knowing that it's not not as it seems right right so just to wrap up about it I had a very similar experience when I saw the headline when it said like man is paralyzed in jiu-jitsu is awarded $46 million. Right. I thought this man was like Stephen Hawking, dude. And that's what I thought too. I thought he was like couldn't move a muscle, like was in a wheelchair for the rest of his life, was, ta was talking ass. through a computer like. But to your point, right, like I just thought that this person could not even speak. I thought they were in bed, whatever it was, or in a wheelchair. When you read the headline, it said they were paralyzed. Yeah. But to continue. Yeah, so I thought he was completely paralyzed, which like already frames the story in like a certain way. Like I right. felt really bad for this individual. I'm yes. like, yo, no matter what the instructor did, he was wrong. Like, how could you paralyze a student? That's terrible. Right. Come to find out, if you read it, he's um, still living with his injury, but he's okay, I guess, in like if you wanted to use that term. Um, and then, uh, if you read more about the case, you find out like the expert witnesses who, going forward, we're gonna refer to as a. Uh, 
Ben R. Macy. Ben R. Macy. So Ben R. Macy. (laughs) So Ben R. Macy is the expert witness in this case. And Ben R. Macy is a a jujitsu, a very prominent jujitsu black belt in our community. When I say prominent, I mean like I should say more like internet famous. Right. There's been so much uh, not controversy, but uh, differing opinions about Ben R. Macy. In the jiu-jitsu space. From the, like, yeah, this has been going on for a long time. It's going on for a long time, bro. Like, I, when I when I saw that he was the one that was brought on the extra witnesses, I'm like, oh, there's something going up here. So, Ben Macy takes a stand and says some wild stuff. Such as? So, I believe that the points that he made, and, like, I'll try to condense them as much as possible. I haven't read the transcript of what he said, which right. is available online. Please go read it. Do your own research. We're we're just here to give our own summaries and make jokes. Remember, this is a joke podcast. Jokes. Ben R. Macy, please do not sue me. Please. So, what I re- what I had read from other people's interpretation, right, um, is that he had said that first of all, this technique that he had done, that the instructor had done to par- temporarily paralyze a student, was a technique that was only to be used in competition settings meaning that in like a casual setting inside of a gym student to student should not be used that it's irresponsible if you use it right i thought that this was complete nonsense right because i had caught my competition techniques in training all the time facts are you saying that you can't hit flying triangles in training are you saying that you can't hit barren bolos in training are you saying that you can't use worm guard in training like like, are you saying that just because something is more suitable to competition that it is completely banned from casual use? Like, that's just ridiculous. Um, the other thing that he said was that because this person was a white belt, meaning a novice. Now, also take this into account that most of the people in that courtroom have zero jiu-jitsu experience. Right? If you tell them omoplata, they will think you're speaking another language. Which, right. I mean, you are. That's funny enough. But they will just not understand anything what you're saying. Right. So basically, this guy had the ability to dictate and define what jiu jitsu was at that moment. Um, so he said that that white belt should not have been training with a higher level belt. Right. Because he believes, or at least in his jiu jitsu system, white belts typically do not start fully sparring until they're blue belts. Right. Yeah. Or at least that most white belt training should be focused on like uh, positional sparring at the most. Right. Mostly technique drilling. Um, he also said. That the the way, and I don't believe he said this in the court case, but I did read his Instagram post about this. He did say that the true way to practice jujitsu is through his um, Macy University system. In, in case you missed that, he during the middle of this or of his explanation, my man plugged his. That was business. O- that was the most od because like. It's it's one thing that like a man was temporarily paralyzed. That's terrible. It's Absolutely. another thing that that the instructor, I believe, who is now deported, can't do the thing that he's been doing for years in this country, which yeah. is also terrible. Absolutely. It's another thing to take all of this and at the end of it be like, "Yo, go <laughs> go to my website." <laughs> Just so you know, so this doesn't happen to you. Come give me money. Like, yeah, use all of that as a plug. That was crazy. Um, to to quick take a quick step back to what we were saying, like in terms of mad enforcers, I think that <clears throat> that does a like. I don't think that the rolling back take is a. Te- I don't agree with that. I think that is preposterous. That's a big word for me. So mm-hmm. I don't know if I even used it right, but it's definitely like not a technique you want to pull off on anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and to being a, a mad enforcer or I guess an, an instructor, right? 
you definitely don't want to put weight onto somebody's neck or kind of stacking positions. Like those are the kind of things you don't want to do to white belts. That said, again, we being that we read the headlines and then we went to go do a little bit more research when we actually saw the video, there were more factors. Yeah. So let's try to, there's a lot to talk about in this segment, right? right? We've just been rambling, talking, trying to give overview of the situation, but let's break it down. So let's start with the actual incident. So the person who suffered the injury um, was not like a brand new day one white belt, as they would have you to believe in the initial article, right? Right. They were definitely in, I guess, in relative terms, a beginner. Yeah. Right. But they definitely were not a um, new person to jujitsu. Right. From from what I read, they at the very least, they had some sort of grappling experience. Yes. Um, So... When you are a active student in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you do have to take some risk in the practice. I believe that, like many people, that often forget that this is a full contact sport and carries many risks. Yeah. Um, just as much risk, or just as much risk as if you were to go snowboarding, just as much risk as if you were to play. Um, rugby, right? You assume some risk whenever you practice something like this in any setting. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that people often forget because we like to wrap our sport in like this branding image of it being the gentle art. It's not like more tired, we're going to get head kicked, but like I've suffered many injuries doing this. And I think that's, I, I've been accepting of them because it, I knew that it came with the practice. Yeah. That's an episode for another time. We'll go down our injuries from head to toe. Um, so, I think when you're a jiu-jitsu student, you take some risk when you're practicing. Now we talk about the other instructor. Um, I think that it's perfectly okay for higher belts to be training with lower belts. I think that what uh, Ben R. Macy said was absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Um, I think that there is training that a person at any skill level can be doing. If you're day one, if you're day 100, right? Absolutely. If you're day one, then sure, I, I lean towards more positional sparring, right? Like start here, very clear win conditions, very clear losing conditions. But you can still train and move around. That's one of the great things in our sport that when you like start, you can immediately start. Yeah. Um, so I think that um, also when you are training with a higher level person or a person who is a higher belt rank than you, you're actually in safer hands, you know, than training with somebody who is another white belt or equally as new to you. Yeah. Because it kind of like dancing, you always want a more experienced partner. They're going to take care of you. They're going to make you look better. They're going to, you're going to get a higher exposure to more moves, right? I, I think it's actually safer for newer people to train with higher level people. Now, of course, everybody's getting pointed to this incident and be like, Ray, like, but this guy got paralyzed. And I was like, now let's talk about the actual move. Yeah, I wanted to say disclaimer right after that, because yes, in theory, the upper belts are supposed to be the safer and, you know, you have more experience. We know that there's some of y'all upper belts out there that are super trash, one, and not very kind, two. So this, we're speaking in general terms, right? But this doesn't apply to all upper belts. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about the actual move. Right. right. So I kind of already gave my opinion on this. I think that people should be able to use um, competition-level moves even in a uh, casual setting. However, from what I've seen in the actual footage, talking to some other practitioners and reviewing how the move should actually be done, I will acquiesce that the black belt in this particular instance did not apply the move correctly. Yeah. Um, or at least optimally, right? Because how many times do you ever do like a picture perfect version of a move? So I guess that'll be like a counter argument. 
But even then, I would say the move was not applied correctly. Yeah. Um, so that when a move is not applied correctly, you sort of open up more danger to both parties. Right. Just because you're taking away the security of the natural structure of the move. Um, but because of that, it just, like I said, just opened up the pathway to more injury. Uh, wh- how did you feel about how it was? How the actual move was done? Um, I, I definitely, like I said, I think his response, the move was a response to the move initiated by the bottom person from what I saw. Mm. I, I definitely, as a smaller grappler, I guess my approach is just different, right? Um, and even with just like, anybody who's a white belt i'm just gonna assume that i can't go 100 with you like i don't care if you wrestled before in terms of jujitsu right like if if you are somebody like john jones and we're training that's a little bit different but if you are somebody with some grappling experience but not that much jujitsu experience right then i'm definitely gonna have to take it down a notch as for the move itself I, i i just think that like you're in the middle of training and maybe the instructor thought that it was a a good idea right because how many times has somebody rolled and he's done this probably a bunch and you know all it takes is one one fuck up and unfortunately um the responsibility is always going to fall on the instructor because even though the bottom person initiated the move was a white belt the top person had more they had the control so they and they are they they're the mad enforcer slash instructor so although i i agree with you I think that there's definitely ways to train with newer people, yeah. with beginners, and having, like you said, having those clear win and loss rules that kind of gives them an idea of how the rounds are supposed to go. Now, when you have more open rounds, then it gets then that that gets a little bit trickier. But even then, it was I didn't I didn't think that it was the best thing for the top person to do. Absolutely. Yeah, I I um when I saw that video, I thought that was like <laughs> the first thing I thought came to my head was. There's at least five other ways that the guy could have taken the back. Oh yeah, and at least ten other things that he could have done from that specific position. Yeah. Um, when this is why we had the conversation about mat enforcers first because we just had to state out there that there are just certain moves that you can't do to certain people. Right. Um, there are certain moves that you shouldn't do to certain people. Yeah. And I think that's one of them. Like when I'm training with like a white belt, I don't think about like doing like my rolling back takes, my barrel bolos, my flying triangles because. Quite frankly, and this is like speaking to a point you made, I will not know how that other person is going to react. Yeah. If you're like a purple belt or brown belt, I can kind of imagine how you're going to react because you've been doing jujitsu for a while. Right. Some of the scariest interactions that I've had training are not getting injured myself, but fearing that I'm going to injure somebody else because this person might move in a way that's going to injure themselves. And it's my responsibility to keep them safe. Yeah. Right. It's kind of like playing with like a child. You don't know if that child's gonna just gonna run off of like a table because they don't know any better, right? Right. You don't know if the white belt is going to do the wrong move on purpose just because they do not know any better. Yeah. Um. So any which is often the case. Yeah. So I, the way that I saw the video, I think that the black belt was more was the one who took the initiative in the move. Okay. I do not interpret it as like the white belt like doing the forward roll. Yeah. If that's how you saw it, like maybe I have to look at it again. Um. But. When I saw that, I saw the black belt initiate the rolling back take. Yeah. And immediately when I saw that, I'm like, oh, no. Like, yeah. dude, wrong move. Like, you shouldn't have done that. Yeah. And, and and even if the bottom person did initiate the roll or whether he didn't, like, that was just how I saw it. Either way, more, I think, if you, I don't want to put blame on 
just one person, but I do, if you're going to split it, the black belt or the instructor does get more of the blame because whether he initiated or not, his response was what led to the injury, right? So his back roll, back take attempt Mm -hmm. was the one that caused the the paralysis. Yeah. um, Now I want to talk about like uh, Ben R. Macy, (laughs) right? So he's talked about like the students, the people involved, and then we talked about the actual incident, the technique. Yo, I got Ben R. Macy, you get my pendejo of the week award, Oh, bro. man. Pendejo of the week. Ben R. Macy, like, when I think about certain people that have done harm to the jiu-jitsu community, I think Ben R. Macy is one of them. How? how harm? How? So, uh, unlike most people who practice Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I have a financial stake in this. Right? Yeah. It's how I provide for myself and how I provide for a lot of things in my life. Yeah. Um, what Ben R. Macy has done, and he'll disagree with this, but what I believe he has done is made jiu-jitsu, um, I think litigious is the right word. What I'm basically saying is that he's opened up the doors for students to sue their instructors over yeah. injuries, right? If um, a student gets injured in a school then I believe they are more open and have a precedent to sue the school and the instructor. Yeah. And this is dangerous because when I work in a jiu-jitsu school and I do not want to be sued, (laughs) right? But also, like, it takes the responsibility off of the individuals and just puts more of a damning light on instructors. Now, I'm not saying instructors should not be held accountable. There will definitely be an episode where we, like, go after instructors for, like, some wild and stuff that they do. Wild. Y'all wild out there. Wild, bro. (laughs) But I believe that people should not forget that this is a full contact sport and they assume some risk um, when they walk into a jiu-jitsu school. Um, I also believe that he kind of sold out the jiu-jitsu community um, saying basically pointing the finger and saying that everybody who is practicing the way that they're practicing and not in the Macy University way is like the wrong way. Yeah. I'll say this because this has been shown that, uh, I mean, of course, he got paid to be an expert witness in this case, but he banked over $100,000 being a paid witness in this case. 100K. Bro, for 100K, I'll say anything. So I respect my man for getting the bag. There's a lot of things I'll do for 100K. Yeah, there's a lot of things. Oh, bro. man. There's a lot of things what? I'll do for 10K. <sighs> Facts. <laughs> Big facts. But to, like, get paid 100K and to, like, sell out a lot of the jiu-jitsu community. Because now when people go into a jiu-jitsu school, what he's basically done, I believe, is that he said if you don't go to a Macy University-approved school, you're going to get your neck snapped. Yeah. Right? Or at least you're more of a risk to get your neck snapped. Yeah. Right? At Macy University, we don't snap our students' necks. Um, and we practice jiu-jitsu the right way, which is just not true. And and if you miss that, that is him, again, just plugging his stuff, which yeah. in it, with context, like, it's just bad timing. It's like, anyways, I was about to hit another example, but I couldn't think of a nickname. No, there, there are plenty of organizations that do the exact same thing. They take a tragedy yeah. and try to spin it off for their own personal profit. Yeah. And I think that this individual did that thing, which is probably, like, the more... Um, I guess, egregious thing that's been happening, like even more so than the guy getting his neck snapped because, you know, all um, condolences to him. Absolutely. It's horrible that that happened, and I'm glad that he made uh, the recovery that he has. But now jiu-jitsu instructors are, and jiu-jitsu schools kind of have to, like, play it safe. Yeah. Like, I mean, you you already shouldn't take care of your students. But now because there's litigation against jiu-jitsu instructors, um, 
I don't know. I don't know how to feel about that. Like I, f- I feel like kind of like uh, threatened a little bit. So, I think that, be- like everything, like your rounds, like the gym you train at, like there's factors. So if you go into a competition <laughs> class, like you have to go in there. Ex- and and I tell this to people all the time. Like when you go into a certain class, and it's a certain intensity. Like go in there expecting to go hard, and sometimes going hard may be rolling on your neck. I'm and I'm not trying to say that you should go in there and try to get paralyzed. No, but some some classes, some gyms, some training rooms are just gonna always be more intense. And when you step in there, you have you're an adult. You have the option to leave. Nobody's telling. I don't. It doesn't matter if the instructor says if you step off the mat, you can't come back on. Like if you don't want to be in a gym, then don't. That said, accidents are going to happen because this is life. And like Ray said, condolences to everybody, right? Like you never, you know, this this person had a traumatic injury, traumatic experience. The instructor, like you said, now has, has to go back to their country. And like there, there's a lot of bad that came with this. And it sucks because for me, the part that really, I guess, like I didn't care about Ben, you know, doing whatever to me, I haven't really paid that much attention to him throughout these years. But the part that got me, or the part that I guess like uh, grinded my gears, was that he felt the need to release an over twenty minute video explain, like defending his position. It's like no, people called you out for what you did, and that was to to what you said. To kind of put it simply, you you just kind of sold out the jujitsu community, and we're like, yo, we teach the way jiu-jitsu is supposed to be taught and it's like that's not true this is an art it is a martial art we as instructors are responsible for providing our students with the proper tools and obviously that's different for everyone so i don't think he is the sole voice or the sole representative of how we should do jiu-jitsu and although he may have made some valid points he also made some points that i don't think make any sense at all of course, this is a very specific scenario, right? right? Um, there was a debilitating injury that happened, like when most people, I'd say it's a one in 10,000 injury. Absolutely. Right? Um, maybe even rarer than that. Right, because how often do you train and you might roll on your neck oh, wrong? Dude, and exactly. It's, you know, like things happen. I've um, I've rolled, God, close ten thousands of rolls. And yeah. thank God I've never been injured that badly. Yeah. Um, so as you can see, it's, it's a very rare injury. Um, in a very rare circumstance, um, and maybe I'm maybe we're inflating this partly due because we wanted something to talk about, but also because um, this man was awarded forty six million dollars, which is a huge headline in any uh, of course. Sport. Um, so congratulations on him getting his bag. Congratulations yeah. on Ben R. Macy for getting the Pendejo of the Week award. Uh, congratulations on getting your hundred grand. I hope uh. You roll around in it and know that it's all going to go away when you die. And you just basically sullied your name for all of eternity in the jiu-jitsu space. So, uh, congrats. Congrats to everybody. And uh, condolences to everybody who um, who suffered. And I hope that everybody just... I wish everybody well. Yo, Jobani, do you think I can snap your neck and then you can sue me and then we'll split the difference? You want to do it right now? I'll do it right now. Let's turn the camera <laughs> off. Let's do it. Do you want to record it, hear the snap? Like, my neck is, like, barely hanging on. We can do this. Yeah. I'm we'll down. S- we'll split the money, and I'll get deported I, back shit, to Brazil. Shit, we can do... You can get 60. I'll get 40. It's cool. Let's do it, man. Yeah. Um, so, Giovanni, let's talk about um, our weekly competition segment. Um. So, this... 
with PANS being uh, last week, um, we have a little bit of a break from major tournaments, um, I believe. In terms of IBJJF, right, um, you have Brasileiros coming up and then Worlds in June. Um, but this past weekend, before we get to the major professional grappling uh, tournaments, um, I competed at Grappling Industries out in Secaucus. I got second, which was dope. I ended up fighting Ashley Williams' brother out there, which was dope. Um grappling industries you need to find a better way to run your fucking tournaments y'all had a shit show it was a disaster that said there was a lot of good tournaments out there a lot of good matches um shout outs to y'all for having so many events but if y'all can't have like seven different events on the same weekend and then like get it together because we were the, like there were still matches going on at 10 p.m. Yeah. Well, what do you think was the main issue in that tournament? Specifically? Well, I mean, it, I, I'm going to put more of the blame on Grappling Industries because they're the host, but I don't think it's entirely on them. I think part of it is the venue that they host. Um, it was at a recreational center, so, you know, there's they're open to their regular members, oh. right? So, so things like that. So they had to empty out the venue like three times for hours. People or outside and luckily the weather was nice but it was supposed to rain all day it was oh, raining yeah. earlier it was raining all day. so was it crazy. was it was raining earlier that day um so i think there's a lot of factors obviously competitors not showing up on time or competitors leaving um you know it is a small local tournament so these things aren't always going to run perfect that said um i'm i'm just a little annoyed because you know i was there all day um but again i i like that there are more tournaments popping up at a uh, at a you know regularly so that's really cool but into our tournaments so this past weekend we had the midwest finishers 13 um and then rise invitational so i'm not they they both had uh really long cards they had great undercard matches i didn't get to catch all of them um much like the research on the lawsuit if you want to go these are both of these events they have replays on flow grappling so y'all can go do that so i'm just going to quickly go over um some of the highlights so at rise invitational um there were a couple of matches that i had my eye on so first we had kyvin Gonzalez versus Fabian Ramirez. Mm. Um, they're both two local competitors. Uh, Fabian fights out of Vanguard and Kyvin fights out of Pure MMA. Um, Fabian ended up winning that one, I believe, in overtime. Both really good black belts, so, you know, really what, local. Tough what competitor. was the rule set for this uh, specific tournament? Um, I believe the Rise Invitational was ABI rules, okay. so um, it was points, and then if you didn't get anything, uh, or it might have been sub only. I know that they fin this match went to overtime. Um, yeah, and I believe that in an EBI rule set, it's a certain time limit that's agreed upon, and then it's a uh, submission only. Yeah, and then if neither person reaches a submission victory, then you are then you each get a turn being put in your position of choice. I believe it's either uh, back control. Or a position called the spider web, which is basically almost a completed armbar. Right. And then you basically compete for fastest escape time. Yeah. Um, so, again, uh, we're not 100% sure on the rules. If you want to go watch the events, go do that. Um, but they, though that was a, a really good match. Then the next one is uh, John Jimenez out of Essential versus Andrew DeGraff. They were fighting for the, I believe it was the 145... Belt. They were fighting okay. for a belt for the promotion. Um, I know John. I've competed against John. I've trained with John. He's really cool. Unfortunately, Andrew ended up beating him. Um, so hope to see him again. Better luck next time. Better luck next time. Um, then we had Renee Souza versus Randy Brown. Randy Brown, who's a UFC fighter. Um, yeah. He's a little bit bigger, but Renee Souza ended up 
getting the win. I believe it was by guillotine. Rene Souza, that sounds familiar. Do, he's do been we... he's been d- killing it with the buggy choke. Um, I believe he fights at a tenth planet. Um, ah, okay, he, okay, okay. Yeah, but he's he's really good. He's been um killing it recently. Um, next there's Nick Ortiz versus Christian Medina. Nick Ortiz was part of uh the. He was part. He trained with Danaher and them, and I think for a while he was training at New Wave. But um, now he's training out at King's MMA in Texas. Um, but he ended up winning his match, and then the two main tournaments going on were they had a lightweight, which was won by Max Hansen, and then they had a women's flyweight championship, which was won by Alex Nguyen. Sorry if I oh, messed win. up. Win. There you go. Sorry. My bad. Um, but both of them, most of these competitors are pretty local to the east side um, of the map. They're, they're all pretty good. That said, then the... I'm sorry, that was the Midwest finishers. That was the highlight. I messed that up. But that was pretty much it. We had a pretty slow weekend in terms of competition. Yeah. One thing that I want to talk about uh, after hearing you uh, list off all of the competitions that happened... Um, I just to quickly rack up, rack up this podcast. Um, both and you and I have been uh, active competitors in the New York City scene, right? Um, over the past, God, close to like half decade, right? Yeah. Um, and for some of you who are listening to this podcast who aren't in the New York City area, might not know that New York City is one of the last places in the country to open up its doors to jujitsu competition again. Yeah, um, it is very difficult to compete and probably even to host um, a jiu-jitsu tournament or jiu-jitsu event in New York City. I remember before the pandemic, one of the main reasons why I decided to become a full-time jiu-jitsu athlete was because there was a tournament to do practically every single month. Absolutely. So it was very, very easy to stay active. I felt very lucky to be here because in other parts of the country, you have to travel state lines and yeah. have to catch a flight. Like, if you live in Minnesota, if you live in Iowa, like, you're going to have to travel a long way every time to compete in a jiu-jitsu tournament. But when you lived in New York City, um, there were at least three different promotions. Within the tri-state area, yeah. you had at least two tournaments a month. Yeah. And then if you wanted to take a drive out to a place like Connecticut or Boston, something like four hours away, there was another, that's another tournament to add a month, right? So there was at least, I want to say, an average of three tournaments a month you had the option of doing Mm -hmm. that were within four or five hours of driving distance at most. Yeah, and and having local tournaments is really important because it lowers the cost and uh, just rather time investment that it takes to compete. Um, There's just so much that goes into play when you go uh, compete somewhere else. Um, If you can compete and just, let's say, take a 30-minute train ride or a 40-minute drive, it's much less debilitating than if you have to take a, a whole day to fly out somebody somewhere and stay the night before because you don't want to get off of a plane and then go right to competing. That's right. not the way to do it. Um, anyway, I, I think that when you're when we were living in New York City at the time, having the option to compete regularly or having the option to have tournaments that did not take uh, a long time to commute to was very important and very, very uh opportune for both of us that being said i don't know what's going on in new york city like i i don't know there was one tournament in brooklyn a couple weeks ago yeah um i don't know if manhattan is just still in this quarantine zone like i am legend like they just bombed <laughs> the bridges like i don't know what happened um yeah i don't know as well all i do know um to kind of 
piggyback off of what you said is that more tournaments are starting to pop up regularly um, with it between just, you know, New York, Jersey, and Connecticut. Um, just like those being the most common places where scene tournaments pop up in in the local scene. You got a couple in Long Island. Um, but yeah, to your point, like it's so much more just if you don't have that kind of uh, financial budget, right? Because when you're traveling and traveling is great, if you have the opportunity, like fantastic. But when you travel, not only do you have to pay for your registration, but now you got to play for, pay for your round trip ticket. If you're if you're driving, you got to pay for gas. Right. And then you got to pay for somewhere to stay if you don't know somebody at the place you're staying to. Like I've had the you know, I'm grateful for the opportunity and I've traveled a lot, but a lot of money goes into it. And it's cool when you can do it every once in a while. Right. To like rather than now where if you want to compete regularly, you have to travel every time. So mm. it does it does. Um, it's very annoying. Yeah. And I also think it. um it gives a showcase to more local talent, you know? Absolutely. Because I think um, not only there's a couple reasons why I like uh, more local tournaments, especially in the Northeast, just because um, it gives a showcase for specifically local talents yeah. to make their name because it's kind of disappointing. Maybe not disappointing, but it's definitely tougher for local names to exactly that get their name out there when the only tournaments that they can not only afford to but get allowed to go to um they kind of get bogged down by all the international stars and all the big names in the sport yeah um so it definitely gives the people who are on the come up their specific moment to shine um i think it also builds a sense of community in the local competition scene yeah because when you go to these specific competitions in wherever your region is you get to know the local competitors um, and then when you go to the more local, uh, the more international tournaments, there is like a sense of community because, you know, like, oh, there's that guy we compete in tournaments all the time. Like, I'll say what's up. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Like you don't feel as alone in your competition setting. And then uh, you get to also build uh, your sense of own jiu-jitsu community. Right. Like if uh, you go up to somebody in competition, you'd be like, oh, what do you train? It's like, oh, I train in New Jersey. And it's like, oh, that's not far from where I live. Maybe I'll, like, I'll drop it in the gym every now and then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's like the a great thing in our jiu-jitsu community where like you can always find somebody. Um, I definitely miss the local tournaments. Same. Um, yeah. I think that they were uh, very fun for me uh, to compete in. And if I can use my podcast as the platform, if uh, you host a local jiu-jitsu tournament in New York City, um, I'll go, man. I, I, I have been itching to go to a local tournament forever now. Uh, my life has changed just a little bit just because I work a little bit more in the jiu-jitsu business. But yeah. Man, I, I have been itching to go to a jiu-jitsu tournament in New York City for forever. Yeah. Um. But yeah, no, no. To your point, I mean, look, I, I know I shattered on grappling industries a little bit. Not all the blame goes on them. Um, jiu-jitsu tournaments, I think it's we're we're naturally competitive, right? And I think that what you don't talk about a lot is also the benefit that it has to the improvement of your jiu-jitsu i think competing is one of the best ways to see where you're at because in the training room you kind of fall into these routines and it's very easy to you know be complacent when you go compete it just you know it's kind of like taking a test and seeing how you're doing in the in the curriculum yeah um very good point that's uh all the time that i believe we have for today uh 
I want to thank everybody for listening today. Episode two of the Latinx Guard podcast. Uh, just some quick shout outs. Uh, you can find me on social media at Ruck Feimundo, R-U-C-K underscore F-A-Y-M-U-N-D-O. Uh, I also started this small project of mine where I'm uh, releasing some video instructionals. You can find that on the Instagram uh, Big Monkey Productions, B-I-G-M-O-N-K-E-Y underscore productions. Uh, Jabani, where can they find you on social media? Um, so you can find me on Instagram at Jobani underscore Rosario. So that's G-O-B-A-N-Y underscore Rosario. Um, I don't have other social media stuff yet, but I'm, I'm working on it. So as we go on, I'll probably start to drop a little bit more here and there. Yeah, we also have one more announcement to make. We just uh, made a uh, Latinx Guard podcast Instagram. So it's Latinx Guard podcast uh, rather at Latinx Guard Podcast. If you want to give us a follow, we just made it. Uh, there's nothing on the page just yet, but I'm sure we're going to get a lot of content on there soon. Hell yeah. We thank you all for the support. I know uh, we just started um, the Latinx Guard Podcast. We're really excited. We're planning to do this weekly. Uh, we are grateful to all the active listeners that are out there. If you have just found our podcast or if um, this was sent to you, we're grateful that you made it this far. Thank you so much for listening. Um, yeah, no, I hope everybody has a, a wonderful day. Uh, thank you guys. And this is, this is, uh, this is fun for us. This is an adventure. So like, you know, we're, we're happy that you guys are out here with us. Thanks guys. We'll see you next week.